According to that most reputable conveyor of truth, HollywoodBranded.com, the top five highest paid sportsmen in the world as of January 2022 were, firstly, Conor McGregor, who while not beating other men senseless, likes to hold Burger King Whoppers at arm's length. Seemed ironic as an endorsement, I thought. Couldn't get it further away from his mouth. <clears throat> Second was Lionel Messi, who remembered to add the World Health Organization at fifth on a list after Budweiser and Pepsi. Cristiano Ronaldo, who I don't believe anyone has ever actually seen eat KFC. Dak Prescott, who only other NFL fans have even heard of, and LeBron James, who as an actor makes a great basketball player. <laughs> Each of these men are paid tens of millions of dollars a year to commodify their identities in partnership with other major or luxury brands. The power of celebrity endorsement is the power to influence. It's a special kind of authority that is essential to the consumerist culture that currently dominates the globe. Celebrity endorsement is that fog that hangs heavily over our culture and into which we go to testify personally to the authority of Jesus the Christ, whether that be in conversation or in public proclamation. Now, John 5 has some important reminders about the difference between the testimony of God to Jesus and the kind of glory in which that testimony is revealed and our culture of celebrity endorsement. So please uh, turn with me to John 5 once again as we reacquaint ourselves uh, with the context of this passage. Uh, and as we do, let me, uh, let me pray for us. Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open the ears of our hearts that we may hear your voice and your word today and live. Amen. Amen. Well, here we are in John 5. The location hasn't changed from the last time we were together. The Messiah is still in the precincts of the temple, debating with the Jews about his authority in the context of his mission. And the presenting issue is his ability to do the works of God, but in a manner that challenges the authority of the temple rulers to speak for God. Jesus heals on the Sabbath, and that starts a contest over not only doing the works of God, but speaking for God about those works. Now, John uses this event to teach us about the values with which Jesus exercises his authority. We've already seen that Jesus is compassionate towards those who are otherwise ignorant or indifferent towards him. Even so, his authority from the Father to judge the living and the dead is an authority to scrutinise and evaluate the way that sinners respond to the compassion of God. Now we must grapple with the fact, at least from the perspective of mission, that the testimony of Christ is ultimately divine and even the scriptures are nothing if not read as the divine testimony to the Son of God. 
So there are two main issues at stake in this last part of John 5. Firstly, the issue of testimony to the Son of God. And secondly, the kind of glory that he expects to receive from that testimony. Now, both of these issues are heatedly contested in relation to Jesus the Christ. From early on in the story, we were told that the zeal for the Lord, or the zeal of the Lord Jesus, was anticipated to bring about a crisis for his ministry amongst the Jewish establishment. We've already seen that in reality of this working out, Jesus, the Jews have been persecuting Jesus and trying all the more to kill him in John 5.18. And the Messiah has framed his devotion to God in absolute terms. He sees his work as equal with the creative work of God in giving life and working against death. What's more, he set his mission against death in the largest possible picture as he claims endorsement from God the Father to judge the living and the dead. In all this, and as outrageous as his words appear to be in the ears of his hearers, Jesus claims nothing that could be misconstrued as self-determination or self-actualization in his approach. He's not a personal innovator, but rather claims to be the true interpreter of the Father's will for his people. Look there in John 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Jesus' authority to judge the Jewish establishment, a judgment that is a foretaste of his eschatological jurisdiction over the world, the quality of his judgment is due entirely to his selfless devotion to the will of the Father. But why should anyone believe him? What is there to substantiate his claims of authority and even kinship with God himself? Here's where we need to look more closely at the meaning of what Jesus says to the Jews in this last section of John chapter 5. Well, firstly, Jesus' authority is not self-authenticating, but divinely endorsed. Look at verse 31 of chapter 5. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. The law requires that the testimony of two or three witnesses is required to verify any claim. An individual's self-testimony is relatively worthless. But Jesus is not alone and his witness is only ever true. In terms of testimony and in terms of John's story, we've already had the testimony of John the baptizer and Jesus alludes to this in his challenge to the Jews. Look at verse 33 there. You sent messengers to John and he testified the truth. I don't receive human testimony but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. The ministry of the baptizer, the Elijah-like ministry of preparing the way for the Lord, 
featured in the first and third chapters of the gospel account. Let me remind you from chapter 1, John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptise with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptises with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now, even though John's endorsement for Jesus was great and the Jews should have paid attention to John while they had their chance, Jesus relies on a greater testimony for his authority. The testimony of John has been succeeded by a greater testimony, even as the ministry of John is succeeded or exceeded by Jesus himself. As Jesus says in verse 36 of chapter 5, I have a greater testimony than John because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. John was a great prophet in Israel. But as with the ministry of Elijah and Moses before him, Jesus' prophetic ministry involves great works and these are the divine endorsement necessary for Jesus to have the confidence that he does concerning God's endorsement of his ministry. The problem for the Jews, according to Jesus, is that they don't know the God to whom John testifies. Look at there in verse 36. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You don't have his word residing in you. Ouch! The fact that Jesus restored life to the body of a paralytic, as only God could, the fact ought to alert the Jews to the divine testimony, the divine endorsement that is manifest in the ministry of the Christ. But the Jews can't see that endorsement, that testimony, because in actuality, they don't know the God they claim to worship. He is as as invisible and inaccessible to them as ever because they don't believe his word of promise about the Christ. And it's this word of promise about the Christ that is the critical factor Because it's not as if the Jews don't honour the word of God. They simply refuse to listen to what they're hearing. Look at verse 39. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Here is perhaps for us a great irony. It's the Bible guys who won't hear the word of the Lord. Yet the solution for the Jews is not to hear God apart from the scriptures, but to hear God's testimony to his son in the scriptures. It would be tempting to say, especially in this context, that the Jews have no biblical theology. Perhaps they should have read Gospel and Kingdom. Or if you were born since 1981, according to plan. 
or gospel-centred hermeneutics or, or any one of our beloved Goldie's works. But Jesus is not encouraging the Jews to have a where's Wally approach to the Old Testament. It's a much more profound theological statement, in fact, a statement about theology proper. Divine self-testimony can only be heard as the word of God, as divine, when it comes from the lips of Jesus, the Son of God. It's only divine testimony, self-testimony, when it comes from the lips of the Son of God, the Father's exclusively endorsed mediator. No tradition, however venerable, can speak for God or about God that does not begin and end with the person and work of Jesus the Christ. The tradition of God's people, as important as that is for theology, is stronger or weaker depending on the extent to which it starts with the Father's self-testimony through the works of his Son. The issue of attending to the Father's endorsement for Jesus turns over into the question of glory or the source of glory for Jesus' ministry. See, the Son's endorsement is from a very different source and so his glory is a very different glory. Look at verse 41 there of chapter 5. I do not accept glory from people, but I know you that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another but don't seek the glory that comes only from God? Since Jesus accepts no human testimony, neither does he accept the glory that humans have to offer. The Jews, by contrast, are all too human in their desire to accept each other's honour, making a name for themselves. They are self-influencers. Hence, they are, as Paul described to the Romans, they exchange the glory of the true God for images made like creatures of various kinds, especially human ones. They do not seek the glory that comes from God because it's a threat to their established ways of understanding God the institutional image they have made for themselves at which altar they worship. For the Jews, it was a fearful God, a God who demands minute observance in preservation of legacy. They worship God as fear, always suspecting the withdrawal of divine favour and a reluctance to honour his word. They don't believe that God wants to save them. They're too afraid that he might reject them. So quick are they to placate God as they understand worship that they fail to listen with their hearts to the word that they hear and will thus condemn them by the very fence they've erected around God's promises to protect him from them. Or as Jesus goes on to say in verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father your accuser is Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? 
Their desire to uphold the legacy of the past has left them close to the future which God wishes to bring them, which is tragically what the Lord said would happen when he spoke through Moses. Or as we read in Deuteronomy 31 verse 19, the Lord said, write down this song for yourselves, that's the song of Moses, and teach it to the Israelites, have them sing it, so that this song may be a witness for me against Israel. The one to come after Moses, whom they long anticipated, has, has come, but they are too blind to see what is right before their very eyes. The human desire for giving and receiving glory has blinded their eyes to the glory of God, even as they will conspire with the Gentiles to have that very glory revealed for all the world on the cross. As the royal eternal son is desecrated and deposed, the glory that was the true son had with the father before the creation of the world will be revealed as by the Jews are condemned, even as God makes provision for their salvation. So then, what about us? Well, I began by speculating, I suppose, over the possibilities of mission in an age of celebrity endorsement. What we see in John 5 is a very different testimony that produces a very different glory. The testimony of God to Jesus is in his works. That's what makes the scriptures true, not the otherwise established truth of scriptures that make Jesus' words authoritative. The scriptures have to be true, of course, but what they're true is about the works that Jesus has done in God's name and that's what makes them authoritative. But at another level perhaps, it's a reminder to us to beware of the desire for celebrity endorsement to increase the profile of Jesus. I have to admit to a certain ill ease, uh, certainly leading up to uh, the pandemic, at the propensity with which our churches, my church, wanted to have some kind of celebrity testimony in order to get people interested in Jesus. You know what I'm talking about. Come and see person X who has this profile, this career, this achievement, and let this celebrity introduce you to Jesus. Now, one level... It's understandable. We want to start a conversation. We want to get people interested. But it's the testimony of God to Jesus in his works that is the means by which we, people will hear the voice of their saviour. No amount of human fame, no amount of human credibility, no amount of human celebrity bears testimony to the truth of the Son of God. At another level, it's a reminder to us that not even our most careful works of evangelism or apologetics are what win people to Jesus. God wins people to Jesus. Our job is to get out of the way. Be careful in your testimony. Be careful in your preaching. Be careful in your life so that it doesn't get in the way of God's good work. That's the purpose of our discipline. 
It's the divinely appointed works from the Father to the Son that testify to his authority to speak for God as God. Hence, it is the ongoing work of the Christ in the Spirit of God that opens people's hearts to hear the Father's testimony to his Son. And that means that our most, our most important preparation for mission is prayer. We must pray that our Heavenly Father will have mercy on us as we speak, but also that he will have mercy on the hearers and open their hearts that they may hear the voice of the Son and receive the gift of eternal life. For without that, they will be as blind as the Jews were. No matter how much time they spend even reading the Bible with us, it's only the work of the Son in the Spirit that opens the ears of the deaf, the eyes of the blind, that gives life to the, to the lame, that they may receive the gift of eternal life. And yet what a simple thing it is for us to come before our Heavenly Father and to ask him to have mercy. We practice it here every day as we say our confession, as we meet in our prayer groups, as we join in our chaplaincy groups. What a simple, wonderful thing the Father has given us to be part of such a mighty work that God will change the hearts of sinners to hear the voice of the Son and to live. Amen.